This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss uh, a topic that has been controversial for quite a long time and central to debates about American democracy, at least going back to the early 20th century and, of course, much earlier. The question of immigration, not only who gets into the United States, but what rights and programs and institutions those who have immigrated to the United States have access to? What are the rights of recent immigrants? What do they have access to? What what are not their rights? And we're really fortunate to have this week with us uh, a leading scholar, uh, policy maker, and thinker on this very topic. Uh, this is Sarah Coleman. And uh, she's a professor at Texas State University and the author of really a fantastic new book that I'm imposing on all of my students and others, uh, The Walls Within the Politics of Immigration in Modern uh, America. Sarah, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Just to give a little more background on Sarah, uh, her research focuses on immigration, race, and rights in the United States. And when you read her book, you'll see that she really goes beyond simply the questions, traditional questions of immigration, uh, issues related to education, social welfare policy, voting rights, and uh, many other related issues. She's also a former advisor to President Joe Biden, and she received her PhD from Princeton University. Before we turn to our discussion with Sarah, of course, we have our uh, scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. What's the uh, title of your poem today? To the Immigrant That Waits at the Border Station. It sounds almost like it's a letter today. <laughs> Let's hear it. To the Immigrant That Waits at the Border Station. In your American soul that waits at the border station lies a little piece of hopefulness that maybe there is an old end to the old problems, a solution to be found in our Winchester, Virginias, and our Dearborn, Michigans, that maybe you will wake up one day and though blistered and marching four steps closer to death each morning, you will see a miracle from the window of a bus, hold a certain holiness in your hands, or find a couple hundred dollar bills for a flat screen television. I hope you find it. But in this American soul, there is an urge to leave, to hold out just long enough to wave it all goodbye. My grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, came to find the same truth as you, and here I am like the rest of them, disillusioned. I refuse to be like my great-grandfather, only flying on Tuesdays for the rest of his life because an old man in a bar in northern Maine told him so a half-century ago. I think we have failed. But I imagine that maybe you do too. That when you unpack your bags and look out over Peoria, you will see that we are also broken. I am hoping I can change it with you. I love how you worked in autobiography, Zachary, and policy uh, perceptions into that. You sound a little uh, disillusioned. Is this a disillusioned poem? Yes. I, I think part of the point I'm trying to make in this poem is that a lot of people come to this country believing that we are this promised land, this place where people can succeed, because that's what we tell the world. But when people arrive here, they see all the many problems that we have, and that doesn't mean our society is evil, but it means that we need to 
make that change, and immigrants have to be a part of that change. Right, right. Well, that is the perfect place to turn to Sarah Coleman. Uh, Sarah, your book starts with 1965 and the the Heart Cellar Act of 1965, which is in some ways, right, this incredible opening of American society. Why is this 1965 piece of legislation part of Lyndon Johnson's Great Society? Why is it so important? It's really important for two, two main reasons, right? It launches a new era in immigration. And what we see in the wake of the Heart Cellar Act of 1965 is sort of a remaking of the nation's demographic profile over the next for decades. And it's important to remember, right, it's approved by Congress in the same year as the Voting Rights Act and just after the Civil Rights Act of 64. And it's sort of passed in this moment in this ethos of civil rights and fairness. And what it does is it sets a uniform cap on all nations. And in an effort to perform, and it gets rid of the national origins quotas that had been in place since the 1920s. And in this effort to to sort of promote this uniformity in this era of of sort of the civil rights moment, it actually introduces for the first time a cap on immigration from the Western Hemisphere, hmm. right? So while the overall cap of the bill, sort of the overall cap under the act rises, the volume of legal immigration from Mexico actually fell, which sort of leads to a sharp increase in deportation. So that's a, one huge impact of the bill. But more than reshaping admissions policy, you know, the Hart Act is interesting to me for this other element that I actually think which is that it sets into place sort of, I argue, a reshaping of American society and culture. And it's at this moment that we see these deep debates emerge over the place of the immigrant in American life, Hmm. Hmm. right? So it's not just a question of what it does to the border, but what does it do about, it sort of changes fundamentally this debate about what, what the immigrant is doing in America and what their rights are. Right. And that's so important to your book, and it's really one of the big contributions you've made. Just quickly, before we get to that second point, to just reflect on the first point for a second, and, and I have to because my, my own father came from India as a consequence of that legislation in 1965. It does open American society to people like my father coming from mm-hmm. India. There were very few Indians in American society who had immigrated before then, and of course, this is true for many other societies. But it's really interesting, your point, that it, it has this perverse effect of limiting immigration from Mexico and other parts of the Western Hemisphere. Could you just say more about that? Yeah. So in the 1924 Act, we'd had national origins quotas, right? They were put in that limited the the numbers of immigrants based on the 1890 census. It also, you know, permanent created bars for anyone from the Asiatic zones, right? It had all these sort of negative uh, restrictions. And what the 65 Act does is it tries in a positive way to increase immigration. But in the 1924 Act, there'd actually been a cutout and the Western Hemisphere, because of the pressure of agricultural business interests, right, Western Hemisphere had never been subject to the caps seen in the 24 Act, right? And so there's a sort of a free movement of people and goods largely across the border. They weren't subject to the same numerical caps. So for the first time in the sort of in this ethos of, of civil rights and fairness and equality for all, there's no longer this exemption for the Western Hemisphere. And that actually means that the volume of legal immigration from Mexico actually falls. And, and I think you give the number in your book of 7%, right? So yeah. it has to be 7% of the total n- number of immigrants coming to the U.S. annually. Is that how it works? Largely, roughly. Okay, largely, roughly. That's as, that's as close as I get There's to There's like precision. a lot of cutouts that I don't think you're the general like deep. I mean, if you really want me to nerd out on the on the numbers, I can... <laughs> 
it's okay. At least uh, this historian, I'm speaking of myself, my numbers are not my strength. So, uh, but but the the real point here is that it reduces the number of legal immigrants from Mexico. And so you quote in your book Hubert Humphrey and others uh, basically championing the 1965 Act as part of the civil rights era, as you've already pointed to, and as, as being race neutral. Is it really race neutral? They try to make it in the effect, right? But it doesn't take into place, I mean, the big argument, right, that May Nye makes and others, right? It doesn't take into account the various needs and traditional migration patterns, Right. around the world, right? And that different countries, okay, you can allow, let's say, for example, like 20,000 people from every country in the world, but for 20,000 percentage of Ireland is much, you know, that's a huge number for Ireland when you compare it with the population of someplace like India. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so w- what we have here is an example that becomes quite common of what looks like race-neutral language that that does have racialized effects. And then your second point, which is really, I think, your, your, your big, huge contribution to our understanding these issues as policy uh, observers and as scholars, is the way in which the 65 Act then changes the debate about what immigrants are allowed to do once they get into the United States? And, and, and how does that debate shift, at least initially, in the late 60s and early 1970s? Yeah. So as controlling admissions to the United States across its southern border proved to be very difficult for policymakers, what we see emerge is a battle to control immigrants inside the United States. And the, the battle to control immigrants shifts from these external borders to more internal ones. And we see an anti-immigrant movement arise that really starts to target the access and and rights of immigrants who are already living in the United States. And your book has some wonderful chapters on education, um, and Texas in particular. And so tell us a little more about the debates about whether immigrants have a right to go to school or not. Yeah, this is one that has a huge legacy for us today. So beginning in the 1970s, as I mentioned, we see an increasing concern with unauthorized immigration in towns and cities across the nation as this demographic profile sort of shift starts to happen in the wake of the 65 Act, right? It takes a couple of years. We start to see that sort of change. It takes over time. And I look at how in uh, Tyler, Texas, which is a sort of a small town or small uh, municipality in the eastern part of the state, a local school board announced in 1977 that they wanted to charge unauthorized students uh, a $1,000 fee in order to attend Tyler Public Schools. And families really struggled with this new policy because in today's dollars, it's about three to $4,000 per student. And they were connected with two young civil rights lawyers who worked in the area. And four of these families went forward with the case, the Alvarez, Lopez, Hernandez, and Robles families. They took the case and other school districts in Texas sort of follow the Tyler model and they begin charging tuition And the case sort of gets consolidated with these other cases in Texas as it makes its way to the Supreme Court. And the case gathers is interesting because it gathers a lot of attention from legal activists. On the left, it draws groups like the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, right, which is coming out of the civil rights movement, sort of part of this new group of advocacy organizations pushing not only for the rights of um, Mexican-American authorized immigrants, but also Um, undocumented immigrants in the United States. And Maldiv had been looking, actually, they are based in California, but they'd been looking for a case regarding educational rights for undocumented children. They believed, you know, looking to the model of Brown v. Board of Ed, that students, right, seemed to be a strong vessel through which to challenge restrictive legislation. 
right? So they sort of mobilize on the left around this case coming out of this small town in Texas. And on the right, the Plyler case is interesting because it draws a whole new group of activists into the anti-immigrant sphere. And one of them is a group called the Mountain States Legal Foundation, which they see the case as sort of a few of their, touching a few of their areas concern. And they're sort of the part of this new conservative public interest legal movement of the 70s. And they sort of see the case as a gross expansion of the rights revolution in the 60s. They don't like the case because they argue it's a creation of a higher tax burden to pay for the government expansion. And for them, right, it also hits this sort of third trifecta of the conservative public interest legal movement, which is sort of the trampling of the rights of local and state institutions, right? So it's sort of this this combination of things that they don't like. Um, And the case winds its way um, all the way through the district court level, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And in a 5-4 decision in 1982, the court sides with the students and their families, and it strikes down the state statute that denies funding for education to unauthorized children. And in the decision, it's a really famous decision, Justice Brennan writes something along the lines, and I'm not going to quote it perfectly because it's hard to remember off the top of your head, but it's something along the lines of, it's un- hard to understand uh, what the state hopes to achieve by the creation of, quote, a perpetuation of a subclass of illiterates, right? And so in backing these students, the Plyler decision seems like a big stepping stone in the sort of late 1970s, early 1980s to expand immigrants' rights, right? So we have this moment, we start to see it post-65, this effort to sort of tramp down on immigrants' rights, particularly in the areas of education, along in some other areas. But we see this first sort of opening salvo, this moment with Plyler, where it seems like this is the first step right? And that immigrants are going to have expanded rights in other areas. Now, it's going to turn out it's going to be a much more rough road for achieving these gains and sort of liberal groups like Maldef are going to find themselves on the defensive. So how did these bitter legal fights and the sort of political controversy surrounding immigration change the broader cultural and social perception of the immigrant in American society? Yeah, so I think what you see in the 1970s is this anti-immigrant movement that makes a really important sort of pivot, right? In the wake of the civil rights movement, right, they can't argue sort of the sort of more traditional nativist racist language, right? And they know they're sort of less socially acceptable. And so what they do is they start to argue this this sort of anti-immigrant movement that arises in the 70s and, and particularly flourishes in the 80s right, that immigrants are a burden on state and society, right, and, and that they're sort of a concern both in terms of the welfare state and the tax burden, right, and that's sort of a, a different argument than when, when you think back to the 1920s and things like the Immigration Restriction League and sort of social Darwinism and eugenics, you know, that, that's sort of a different argument that you're seeing in the 70s and 80s, and groups like the Mountain States Legal Forum really push that, right, they're going to argue that what they're arguing for is it's not that they're quote-unquote racist, they're just all about, you know, you know, taxpayer rights, right? The right of the taxpayer not to pay for the education of immigrant children. To me, this is such a fascinating and relevant part of the story, the 1970s and 80s, which you describe as a period when on the one hand, as you just said, the rights and access to American society for immigrants, uh, authorized and unauthorized, is growing. 
But on the other hand, there's also a backlash against it, right? Both of these things are happening uh, at, at the same time. And it seems to me, and I wonder if you agree with this, that it's it's really running parallel and, of course, connected to the debates over integration of schools in general, right? Where, on the one hand, traditionally segregated populations are gaining access to schools, but on the other hand, there's a backlash and white families pulling their kids out of the public schools that the new kids are entering into, right? It's a similar kind of dialectic or contradiction that you're describing. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's a fair assessment. I think what you see during the 1970s with one small caveat, and I'll, and I'll go into that bit, a bit more, but what you see in the 1970s, and I think you see this as right, many working and middle-class Americans right, are entering this new era where there's a new service-oriented low-wage economy, right? And they're feeling economically insecure. And they're struggling with the deindustrialization in cities, right? They're, discla- they're struggling with like a change in status in terms of economic ability. And I think they're looking for someone to blame, right? And so part of that blame goes to this question of busing and, and segregation, right? And desegregation. And part of them, right, so for some middle and working class white, and this is my caveat, and black citizens, because we'll talk about this in a little, I can go into this more depth, right? They viewed the massive growth of the Latino and unauthorized populations, which, right, which are all too often seen as one and the same group of people, as the cause of that inequality. And they sort of associate them with these, and sort of the displacement that's occurring to them due to these larger economic structural issues, they sort of associate with the, the sort of shifting immigration and the rise in the immigrant population, even though they're not necessarily tied to each other. Does that make sense? Yes. And I, I did want to follow up on precisely the, the point you hinted at there, the ways in which this fractures, I think that's the word you use, uh, the civil rights coalition, where some African-Americans will see the arrival of large numbers of Latino immigrants, for example, or Asian immigrants, right, as threatening their status. Uh, how does that play out? Right. So the, the sort of what's interesting to me is, you know, oftentimes today we think of this United Civil Rights Coalition behind immigration and sort of we think of the today's world, right? The, there's two very distinct, you know, sides on the immigration issue. And oftentimes, particularly today, right, it's pretty closely tied to political party. And that wasn't the case in the 60s and 70s, right? So in the 60s and 70s, those who are pushing immigration restrictions are groups like the AFL-CIO or the Urban League, right? And other sort of NAACP at various points, certain, you know, the UFW, United Food Workers, right? So it's, it's not necessarily a question on this sort of, there's not this united civil rights coalition mobilizing sort of to unite communities sort of in sort of addressing this nativism and racism, right? It's, it's a very fractured coalition. And so on the, the people who are actually pushing immigration right on the left is this diverse group of everything from the AFL-CIO to more traditional nativists, to the Urban League, to others, right, who view them as competition for jobs. I mean, so right. that sort of unique moment where there's this unusual, or as one political scientist calls it, right, strange bedfellows that's sort of behind that. that right. And, that and they're strange bedfellows on the other side, right? I mean, there actually are Republicans, some people around Ronald Reagan, for example, right, who think that immigrant rights are a good thing, right? Yeah. And they think, right, there's a, there's a coalition on the right that there are some, right? The coalition on the right often includes agribusiness, right? People who, and also interestingly to me, right, the, you know, there are many people in the Reagan administration who just do not believe in the sort of overarching 
federal leviathan, right, or sort of federal regulation and that kind of stuff. And so they don't believe in the regulation that would come with a strict immigration regime, right? They don't want employment verification. They don't want sort of the federal government in their minds really like getting into the nitty gritty of how we live our lives in terms of regulating employment. And this is a really fascinating subtext in your book, which is the the federalism subtext that uh, for that reason, right, more authority is devolved to the states. Um, and and it's, it's fascinating. A state like Texas is fascinating, right, where you actually, I think to this day, right, an unauthorized immigrant can still attend the University of Texas and pay in-state tuition. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that's that's an outgrowth of, of actually more state authority or more state um, initiative around these issues. Right. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting is so many people, I think if you ask the average listener or kind of thing, many people sort of think of Arizona's SB 1070 and Sheriff Joe Arpaio as sort of this beginning, right, in like late, late 20, 2009, 2010, as sort of this beginning in the new era of states shaping immigrants' rights. But one of the things I really emphasize in my book is that states have had a much longer history of shaping immigration policy and immigrants' rights, right? And nearly two decades before Sheriff Joe in Arizona, you know, states like like Iowa, as I point to, are shifting the nation's immigration policy. And in my book, I look at how a murder in a small town in Iowa, right, and the sort of the heartlands sort of changing immigration patterns were used by politicians to spur the creation of a program called 287G in 1996, which allows the federal government for the first time to deputize state and local law enforcement to assist in federal immigration enforcement. And that's like a whole new world in 1996, because previous to 19, previous to that point to 287G, basically we've had we had almost a century of exclusive legal federal control over immigration enforcement. But what happens is states like Iowa in the 90s begin to move, and then we start to see that come all the way forward, right? And right. so local and state action, right, has started to really shift immigration policy, and then sometimes it's towards restriction, right? But there are also places like California where states are pushing increasingly for immigrant integration and inclusion. What kind of effect does that have on the immigrant experience in the United States? Does it make it more difficult to survive as an immigrant in the United States, or does it make it much more uneven? I think it makes it much more uneven. I think a lot of the, um, if you were to ask, part of the greatest challenge that many and if you look at sort of what the debate going on right now around the Build Back Better uh, bill, right, is this sort of limbo state, right? And sort of what that means when you are here and you're part of your community, but you're not legally part of the state, you know, right. that, that sort of like limbo right. moment. Like, how do you really, like, always one foot in, one foot out? Right. Uh, before we get to the 1990s and then the current moment, and, and the 1990s you, you flag as a turning point uh, and the beginning of our current uh, situation, uh, I do want to bring up Prop 187 in California, which is so important in its time. You have a wonderful analysis of it. And it also might surprise some people. What, what is Prop 187 and, and how does it fit into your narrative? Yeah. So I think probably what might surprise most listeners is that between 1935 and 1971, no federal laws barred non-citizens, even unauthorized immigrants, from major parts of the social safety net. Social security benefits, unemployment insurance, OAA, or ADC, which later becomes aid to families with dependent children. And when new programs are created during this time period, right between the 30s and the 70s, um, like 
the food stamp program or Medicaid, the same rules are applied, right? So non unauthorized immigrants have access to these programs. And beginning and, and in the 1970s, what? I was just going to say, Sarah, just as an aside, I, I just want to make this personal for some of our listeners. Most of us have family members, if they were immigrants, who benefited from these programs when they were not citizens. So my Jewish Russian great-grandmother, who never learned to speak English, benefited from Social Security, even though she was never a citizen. And, and so it, this is something all of our yeah. families actually benefited from. Yeah. So basically, if you immigrated right prior to mid-1970s, you had access, regardless of your immigration status, to the social safety net in the United States. And under federal law, both authorized and unauthorized immigrants were eligible for these programs on the same basis as citizens. And what we see is with this new wave of anti-immigrant sentiment in the 70s, you start to see the targeting of unauthorized immigrants access to these programs. And by the end of the 1970s, unauthorized immigrants are prohibited from receiving many of these federal programs. But that really changes even more in the 1990s in the wake of Proposition uh, 187. So Proposition 187 is a ballot initiative that was passed in California in 1994 which sought to prohibit unauthorized immigrants from accessing public benefits, things like healthcare, education, and social services. And so what's really interesting to me is it's passed, right? And you think about these things, but it's actually going to end up being invalidated uh, by the federal courts. But that actually doesn't really matter in the long term for national politics because the measure's popularity ends up shifting national policy. So in the wake of Proposition 187, we see the Clinton administration and Republicans on the Hill sort of try and recalibrate, right, the new politics of immigration at this moment. And they realize, and the, sort of they're looking at the 94 midterms, Gingrich has come in as part of this contract with America, and both Gingrich and his contract with America and the Clinton White House sort of look to California, right? It's going to be an important state in the 1996 election. Clinton needs it for a re-election. And both the left and the right sort of looked to Proposition 187 and they started to pivot their position. And the Clinton administration in particular is working on welfare reform and they shift their policy on authorized immigrants' access to the social safety net and welfare reform. And they end up reducing that access to the point where the savings from that funds 40% of Clinton's welfare reform plan, right? And so in 1996, under under welfare reform, the, between a, a deal worked out between the Clinton White House and congressional Republicans, the federal government ends up barring states from using federal funds to provide Medicaid, food assistance, and key, other key social safety programs to the majority of recent legal immigrants, right? Regardless of the stat, you know, these are people who have green cards and sort of have legal residency in the United States. Sarah, I just want to underline this point because it's so crucial that under Ronald Reagan, under a Republican president, uh, there was very little push from the White House to deny benefits to unauthorized immigrants. But under a Democratic president, because of these shifts in opinion, all of a sudden there's a push from the White House to deny these benefits to unauthorized mm-hmm. immigrants. That's that's an accurate reading, isn't that's it? That's an accurate reading, right? I mean, congressional Republicans had been pushing it, and then he sort of looks and uh, and sort of shifts after the 94 midterms. And, and is that why the 90s are a turning point for you? I think the 90s are really important because it's a restrictive era in which citizenship rather than resident status becomes this new boundary for access to rights, right? So it's no longer sort of, it's are you a citizen or are you not? It's not a question of sort of residency status, like are you part of our society or not, right? It's really do you have citizenship rights? And, and what are the implications of that? 
I think the implications of why it's really important is I think we, we spend so much time thinking of ourselves as a nation of immigrants, right? But really now it's sort of, are we a nation of citizens and non-citizens, right? And I think that's a fundamental shift in sort of how we think about what it means to be inclusive, right? And I think you think back to Zachary's poem at the start, right? What does it mean to be working at something together? What does the American mean dream mean, right? If you're coming here, you're providing labor, you're a key part of your community, but you're not considered part of the nation. Right. And it's interesting, right? Because still, to this day, you can join the military as a non-citizen, as a resident, mm-hmm. but you're denied you're denied benefits as a consequence of these decisions that were made. Do you see, and I, I think you do, as you argue in the book, that this shift to an emphasis on citizenship rather than residence, you see that as significant to understanding the movement to build a wall and a lot of the uh, anti-immigrant policies surrounding Donald Trump and the Republican Party. Uh, what's the connection? Right. So I think what you see, and I think this is important, is that, you know, I think what I try and make it clear in the book, and I think this is true, is that oftentimes, right, this flashier thing on the front page of the Times, right, is what's going to be the Southwest border, right, or border and admissions numbers, or this number of refugees, you know, refugee policy, and you know, in terms of admissions. But it is, there are, you know, 12 million undocumented people in the United States, roughly. There are another 12 to 14 million who are here as legal permanent residents, that's 24 million people in the United States, right, who are in this other category. Um, And I think it's really important to think about, you know, not just what's happening at the border, but also immigration policy as like acknowledging what that means for a huge population in the United States, 24 million people. And some of these are the dreamers, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So we dreamers always are lo- about two. Uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's a little bit rough, but um, dreamers are about two million. Two million of the of the twenty four million of the twenty four. So, Sarah, we always like to to close on a uh, positive, optimistic note. Really seeing how um, um, greater historical awareness can help us to see uh, alternative pathways forward. What do you think are some positive and uh, possibilities for us in thinking about immigration policy, particularly on the domestic side, internal immigration policy going forward? What are some things we can do as citizens who are aware of these issues, as residents who are aware aware of these issues? I think history is important, and it reminds us that it's possible to do things in a way that's different from today. And I think it's important because it reminds us that many, for many of us who are not first generation, right, it reminds us that our our relatives and ancestors, right, had a huge access to state and society that helped us get to where we are today, right? And that we should and can do things differently. We can go back to a more expansive welfare state for immigrants. We can sort of provide access to the American dream. I think the other thing that I think is really uplift, sort of if you want to take a positive note from this story, right, we've seen this 40-year assault on immigrants' rights, We've seen some holdouts, right? The Plyler case still stands today as an as a important piece of policy. But I also think, you know, we've seen how the right has used state legislatures and state-level policy to push more restriction. And I think in certain states, we've seen how 
immigrant inclusion has happened at a state level. And I think for the average person listening, right, small changes at a local level can actually drive national policy is one of the things I show, right? That something that goes on in Iowa or something that goes on in Tyler, right, could, it can be a shift for the negative. It can also be a shift for the positive, right? You can see how something, how a change in policy at a local level can really shift a national conversation. And, and so Sarah, to especially our, our younger listeners, um, what should they be arguing for at the local level? What should they, what should they focus on? I think, you know, the more we can focus on providing access to opportunity, right? Whether that be in education, whether that be in sort of access to sort of things like driver's licenses and other ways to create um, access to healthcare, right? I think in the wake of the pandemic, you see that, you know, all these things are sort of things that you can, that cities, various cities like New York and others have modeled, right? And we've seen that it works. And I think at a local level, we could push for more inclusion. You know, I was thinking the other day, Sarah, that we actually do have a model of this in front of us as as controversial as vaccinations have become in our society. What has been almost universally true is uh, pretty much every community in the United States has offered vaccines to those who want them, even if they can't afford to pay for them, regardless of whether they're a citizen or not. And understanding, I think this pandemic perhaps reminds us all that we're all in this together, right? right. And that if right. one person is sick, that, you know. It right. has a large impact. But it, you know, it runs against all the efforts to restrict healthcare access to immigrants. Now with, with the vaccines, the restriction is, is a self-imposed one, but immigrants who want access, um, even if they're not citizens, they've been able to get access to the vaccine. So that's that maybe is a model for us going forward. Zachary, what do you think? You go to a school that's filled with the children of immigrants and immigrants themselves. You're surrounded by these, these issues. Uh, how, how do you think about how our society can move forward, how we can improve the way we think about and include immigrants and create opportunity for them. I think that across the board, young people are very supportive of, of immigrants and immigration. But I think that, that, that we are not aware of this history. We need to be more aware of the history of federal government aid to immigrants, and, and not just federal government aid, but community support provided to these immigrants. And I think part of what this story tells us is that we can't expect immigrants to simply be able to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. And that's not what our parents and grandparents and great-great-grandparents had to do, and we shouldn't expect it from others. Right, right. L last question, Sarah. Uh and as a reminder, right, immigrants, we all know the data, but immigrants pay in far much more to the system than they will ever take out, right? There's a... Right. You know. that, that's exactly where I was going to go with the last question, Sarah. Uh, it, is what Zachary is describing and what you're advocating for more of the traditional benefits and, and expanding on those for, for immigrants, is that financially sustainable? Yeah. I mean, I think we know that immigrants not only pay far more into the system than they will ever take out, and they also don't often access it at the same rates that others do. And we also know, right, for example, so an interesting side fact, in 19, um, I talk about this inclusion in my book, and I actually don't have it in front of me, or I could pull up the actual figure. Um, in 1986, the Social Security Administration starts something called the Earnings Suspense File, which takes all the money when you submit, right, a, a, a tax, all the withholdings for those who 
whose social security numbers don't match their names, right? So whose, whose papers are falsified. And so all those tax withholdings that are being withheld for undocumented immigrants, right, from their paychecks, that actually really sustains a fair amount of the social security trust fund. I want to say it's like 10%. And if you give me a minute, I could look it up, but it's an incredibly high rate. And right. And so I think not only are they paying in more than they take out, they're also paying in enough to really support the general uh, welfare of the United States. Wow. Well, so that really underlines the point about our, our the benefits that immigrants provide to our society, actually cash benefits to our national pension system, uh, which is quite extraordinary. Sarah, thank you so much for uh, sharing your research and your insights. Uh, and and uh, really what you bring is not only the depth of a historian around these issues, but your knowledge of policy too. And, and uh, that's what we seek to find each week on our podcast, a way of bringing history and policy together as you've done. So, so thank Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And Zachary, thank you for your poem, as always, and your questions. And uh, thank you most of all to our listeners for joining us uh, for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This Is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.